We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. We welcome your ears. I really was faced with like a third world reality and a real understanding of poverty and how much we have here. And so when I got home, I had this fire under my butt and this new idea of how privileged I was and how hard I had to work to really take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. And then when I got home, I finished the second novel, was feeling kind of lost and didn't know what to do. And then I started painting again the summer of 2013. So it was a couple months after the trip when I started painting, but I just have never stopped painting since then. Oh, You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Episode 143, The Undefinable Spirit, Ricky Shade, Engaging the Ethereal. Come on in, have a seat. Join the conversation. Welcome to The Sill Podcast and The Undefinable Spirit. And today we have a special guest, artist Ricky Shade. Ricky Shade is an award-winning Canadian artist born in 1993 in Brampton, Ontario. His love of animals, nature, and fantasy is rooted in his early childhood and serves as the foundation for his paintings and drawings. He works as an artist, art instructor, and community arts advocate in the small town of Orangeville, Ontario, Canada. Ricky is self-taught, but is always seeking new artistic knowledge and exploring new mediums to expand his understanding and hone his craft. Current projects include writing and illustrating a children's picture book and creating a new body of artwork, including several large-scale oil and acrylic paintings. Ricky is also the recipient of the Creative Cultural Event of the Year 2020 for his Beautiful Wild Art Exhibition at Maggioli Art Gallery, recipient of the Dufferin Arts Council's 2019 Reed T. Cooper Bursary in Visual Arts, and the Painting with Water Media Award Insights Exhibition 2019. Welcome to the podcast, Ricky Shade. Hey guys, thanks for having me. Nice to have you on, Ricky. So just to get started, tell us a little bit about your childhood and how it influenced the art that you do, your connection to nature, fantasy, and the basic human experience. Well, I grew up in Brampton, and obviously I don't have too many sharp memories of my very early childhood, but as a kid I grew up with uh, cartoons, and so I just remember always loving like dinosaurs and animals and colorful things and You can see it if you look at my art and then Mm -hmm. just think about it. You can see that a lot of it's from those like childhood influences. And I especially love fantasy. And uh, my dad did art as a hobby. So he introduced me to painting and drawing. Uh And kind of I fell in love with it as a really young kid, but never thought that I would do it as a career. But I always loved art throughout my childhood and had a pretty sheltered existence in Brampton. I don't really remember doing too many things outside of my house or my immediate neighborhood. So I think for that reason, I was always kind of exploring in my own imagination. Mm-hmm. There's a kind of innocence to your work, too, mm-hmm. that carries over. And there's a childlike innocence to it, which is quite, uh, it's very compelling, too, because it's adult artwork. And yet there's this softness, this innocence to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Yeah, my artwork, it always tends to have that feeling, and I'm not really sure why. I think it's because when I paint, I'm sort of tapping into that sense of childlike wonder. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, I also understand, Ricky, that you had a kind of a transformative experience a number of years ago on a trip to Guatemala. Can you talk about what happened on that trip and how it changed your life and your art? Sure. So before that trip, I was actually writing. And so I had written two fantasy novels and I was actually working on the second one leading up to the trip to Guatemala. And actually in Guatemala, I worked on it a little bit, too. Mm. So I wasn't really painting before the trip, but I went to Guatemala with my brother and his girlfriend. And she had been there a few times before. And we went to participate in this series of seven sacred fire ceremonies. So it was like we were part of a group with a bunch of these like Mayan shamans. And for seven days, we went to seven different ancient ruins site. Each day we did a sacred fire ceremony. And I didn't have it explicitly in my mind that I wanted to be an artist, but I feel like through that trip, I kind of set the intention of having a creative life and following my creative spark and really honoring that. That was one of the things that like, I put into the fire, like you would put your intentions into the fire and the sacred fire ceremonies. Mm. And so that's one of the things I always put into the fire. And then also on that trip, like I really was faced with a third world reality and a real understanding of poverty and how much we have here. And so when I got home, I had this fire under my butt and this new idea of how privileged I was and how hard I had to work to really take advantage of it. Mm -hmm. And then when I got home, I finished the second novel, was feeling kind of lost and didn't know what to do. And then I started painting again the summer of 2013. So it was a couple months after the trip when I started painting, but I just have never stopped painting since then. And do you have any sort of formal artist education or is it all self-taught? <laughs> Uh, so I don't really have any actual formal education. I did also travel to Austria for a total of five weeks. It was two separate trips, but a total of five weeks studying with an artist in Austria. His name was Philip Rubinov Jacobson, mm. and he taught me a technique called the Misch technique, which is a mixed technique of oil and egg tempera involving many layers and glazes of color, and it's a technique that was used by many of the old master painters. Mm. Which is interesting. This is an interesting segue because my next question, obviously you had kind of a spiritual experience in Guatemala. Fair to say that? Yeah, definitely. So when I look at your work and then I hear the story about Guatemala and now your trip to Austria and so on, there's a very distinct style to your art. How would you describe it and how did you arrive at that style of painting? Um, so in terms of the subject matter, I think that the thing that's always been a constant thread throughout anything I do, and it was even present in my writing before I was painting, is like there's always this kind of sense of fantasy, imagination, cosmos, like I love outer space and that's also a thread that's going through my work and it's just really who I am and the things that I'm fascinated with, like I love animals, I love anything like fantastical and like storybook and that kind of vibe and also science fiction, so like all of that kind of marries together in my work. Mm. Uh, so that's in terms of the subject matter and then in terms of the technique, I've just really, ever since I started painting and wanted to get better, I've just always been dedicated to learning new things, trying new things, and sort of understanding more of like the foundations of art. So when I first started painting, I really had no concept of the foundations, like the foundational principles of art. But over the years, I've really been understanding them and learning them and incorporating them into my work. And so now I have kind of 
a grasp of light and color, and I can create these realistic scenes that are fantastical in nature. So I've mm. got the technical side, and then I've got my love of fantasy and that whole aesthetic that I've cultivated over the years. And those two things have come together to create the artwork that you see. It's beautiful. I, I wanted to ask you about a particular kind of motif that seems to recur in a lot of your paintings. So this is a question, again, about inspiration. There's that almost a, a lotus-like, lotus-petaled figure or being or something that seems to float through many of your paintings. I'm just wondering what inspired that particular visual motif for you. You know what I'm talking about? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so basically one day I was drawing and I drew a mandala, yeah. which is like that radially symmetrical lotus petaled design that you're talking about. Right. And that's a pretty widely known type of thing. Mandalas are present in a lot of art and in a lot of different cultures, specifically Hindu culture. But uh, one day I was drawing a mandala and then I just had this idea to give it a body, the snake-like body. And so I did, and then I was kind of really struck by what I saw looking back at me on the page. And this was in 2014 when I kind of discovered this. Like, it wasn't something I intended to create. It just kind of happened. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then I was just fascinated with it and painted more of them and drew more of them. And I really went through a phase 2014, 2015, 2016, when they were like the main figure of my work. They're not really the main figure of my work anymore, mm -hmm. but they are still threaded throughout the work. Like, you'll see them making appearances here or there in my paintings. And to me, the mandala just represents like the order of the universe and the incredible beauty that I see in that order of the universe and the order of the universe at the gigantic scale, like the cosmic scale, and then all the way down to the microscopic scale. Mm -hmm. And so to me, those creatures are just like a symbol of the order of the universe. Yeah, I was going to say your work is really symbolic. There's a particular piece I absolutely love. It's the one with the owl in the foreground and then this night sky in the background and that particular mandala-like image that you've incorporated almost like a moon shape but with the mandala yes. and the petals. It's an absolutely gorgeous piece of work. And are you conscious of what the symbolism is in your work and what it means or is it just an intuitive feeling? It's a little bit of both. All the paintings are different. So some paintings are not planned at all and just happen. Some paintings are very planned. Some paintings are sort of planned. Some paintings I go into and there's this philosophical idea and I say, yeah, okay, I'm painting that idea. And the symbolism is all geared to that. Other paintings, like for that one, it was just like, I'm going to paint an owl. And I painted an owl and then all of the colors and the mandala design and everything kind of flowed out intuitively. So mm. it's a little bit of everything. Right. And speaking of accidental or deliberate, do you think that artists have any sort of responsibility to society or the world at large? And as an artist, what kind of job description would you assign yourself? So when you say like responsibility to the world at large, I feel like every artist has a different mission with their art. So mm. some artists are very political yeah. and use their art to raise awareness about political issues. And their pieces very definitely are speaking about these political issues. And my art's definitely not that. I do definitely translate my feelings about political issues and things like that into my work. But I'm not going to say I'm creating this work to raise awareness about such and such a social justice issue. That's not 
mm-hmm. what my work is, and I don't necessarily feel that responsibility to the world. Mm-hmm. But I think a lot of artists do and create art for that reason. And I think that's really wonderful that they do that. But like I said, there's all different types of artists. And so I feel like the mission of my artwork is to kind of bring a certain type of awareness to people and each painting is different. So some paintings I create to bring joy to people. Some paintings I create to sort of make people reflect on different things in their life, but it's never super deliberate. So you wouldn't be able to like look at my painting and say, oh, that is about this, right? It's always very open to interpretation. And I'm always super happy to hear like when people have looked at my painting and they say, oh, this made me think about this or this related to this in my life kind of thing. So I just feel like my responsibility to the world is to keep creating my art and spreading joy and just making people come into a more aware state through looking at the art. Right. And because I probably gave you a two-part question, you probably forgot the second part of the yeah, question because you I need did, time. Yeah. yeah, of course. <laughs> I just, uh, I should have asked them separately. So basically my follow-up question to that was, if you had to assign a job description to yourself, what would that be? So very, very broad is just creating images. That's really it. Mm-hmm. And that's really the foundation of everything. I wish that I could just do that. Right. Just sit in my studio and make paintings. But obviously, there's a lot more to the job than that. So the foundation is creating images. And then you have to share the images with the world and hopefully have a positive impact with it. And I'm also an instructor and a teacher. So my mission of sharing joy through art goes into that realm as well as I want to show other people how to create art so that they can express what's inside of them through art as well. Right. So for me, it's creating images and empowering others to be able to create images. Beautiful, beautiful. Mm-hmm. Now, the follow-up question in a way is, it's wonderful to be creating images and giving pleasure and inspiration to people, but as a professional artist, it's not just a vocation, but it's a business as well. Can you talk about your quote-unquote business model, so to speak? Yeah, absolutely. So I have a really kind of wonderful, unique situation where I am. So I obviously work as an artist and creating my art. Like I have a website and social media that I use to promote my work. But then I also am the manager of an art supply store and a studio in Orangeville called Maggioli Art. So I work there as a manager and also as an artist instructor. Those are also income streams. So I've got income from my painting sales, income from my print and merchandise sales as an artist, income from being the manager of Maggioli's, income from teaching, private lessons, group lessons. And then Maggioli Art also acts as like a gallery for me. So people that I connect with through my work as the manager and teacher at Maggioli Art then connect with me as an artist and end up purchasing work and commissioning work from me and having me do design work for them. So I'm really lucky that I have Maggioli Art in that way because it puts me out to the community and provides a space for me to connect with the public. Mm -hmm. So I have like a symbiotic relationship with them where I provide a lot of value to the business and then the business provides a lot of value to me in that they allow me to use it as a place not only to work as a manager and art instructor, but also to facilitate sales and marketing of my own artwork as well through the space. Mm-hmm. And speaking of community, of course, we live in Orangeville, Ontario, small community about an hour northwest of Toronto. And my next question really comes down to location. And 
How does living in a small town affect you, if at all, in the way you approach your art or the business of uh, selling your work? So over the years, as like a young person growing up in this town, you always hear people say, oh, you want to be an artist? You got to go to Toronto. You got to move to the big city if you want to do this Mm -hmm. for real. And obviously that's been a thing that's haunted me this whole time. It's like, should I be here? Should I be living here? Should I move Mm -hmm. to the city? And I really don't know what... I would be like who I would be and how different my career would be if I had moved to Toronto. I have a feeling that because I'm in the small town and because my work and my personality and my presence in the community is so unique that I've been able to kind of create a really good space for myself as a professional artist here. Mm-hmm. And I feel like maybe living in Toronto, there's more of a saturation of artists I don't know that I would have been able to achieve the same level of success if I'd been in the city. On the flip side, you could argue I could have achieved a much wilder level of success living in the city. And maybe, and maybe I still will through working professionally in the city, not necessarily living there. But I do think that living in Orangeville has been really good for me because I've been able to make a lot of personal connections with people. And I feel like a lot of the people who live in this town are kind of more established, like middle-aged people. There's not a lot of like young, scrappy people like trying to make it for themselves in this town. It's more of like, okay, we're financially stable. We're like middle class. We're living in Orangeville. And I feel like those people, a lot of those people can afford art and want to support artists. Mm -hmm. And so I think that sure there's also a lot of people with money in the city who want to support artists but i think that uh, living in a small town has been good for me for that reason as well yeah it may have given you some opportunities that you wouldn't have had immediately and it's a great stepping stone if you do want to make it to the big city yeah exactly and i feel like if i had moved to toronto when i was 20 i would have just gotten swallowed up in a vicious cycle of just trying to get minimum wage jobs to pay my rent kind of thing mm-hmm. Um, but here I've got like a support network and I've got some great friends and great connections and I'm able to not kill myself trying to just pay like rent for a shoebox apartment. You know what I mean? It almost doesn't matter where you live as an artist these days, you're dealing with COVID and I'm wondering, you know, what some of the challenges have been for you during this time of COVID as an artist. So when the first lockdown happened, it was during March break, right? And we run like March break art classes at Maggioli's. And at the start of the week, we were like, okay, everyone's blowing this thing way out of proportion. Come on, people, we're not going to have to shut down, Uh, yada, yada. And then halfway through the week, I was like, okay, yeah, we're shutting down. We can't do anything. I lost all my teaching work, all my work at the shop as the manager. All of that work suddenly dried up and it's not like I was selling tons of paintings at that time or anything either. So it was kind of terrifying. Mm. I just like suddenly was without work and they hadn't announced the CERB or anything at that point. So I kind of just was like, okay, this is do or die. I started making some social media posts and promotional emails and things like that saying, okay, people, I've lost all my work. Now's the time if you want to buy a painting or Uh. commission something or buy some prints. And then I actually had a pretty wonderful outpouring of support People commissioned work from me and bought paintings, and I started doing virtual art lessons for people, and just kind of had to pivot and adapt to the new situation. And so that worked really well for me. I also took on some other little part-time jobs and things like that, just to have other sources of revenue because everything was so uncertain. It was like, I don't know what's going to happen. One thing could dry up, this thing could not happen. So I was just trying to really 
be secure. And then the first lockdown transpired and I was doing fine. And then they announced the CERB and uh, I decided not to take it because I was making enough money. And I like if you take the CERB, then you're only allowed to make a thousand dollars a month, I think it was. And I didn't want to restrict myself. So I just didn't do the CERB. And then I weathered the first lockdown and then things kind of opened up again and we were able to do classes again and I got a bunch of shifts back at work. And so I feel like my situation was a lot better than a lot of artists. I just really worked hard and and tried to adapt and it worked out really well for me. And throughout the whole year last year, I actually had my best year ever. I sold more paintings than ever. I had more commission work than ever. Mm -hmm. It ended up being really good for me and my business. It sounded like you had to sort of surf the wave, so to speak. Yeah. Basically. You had to be more creative as an artist. uh, Absolutely. And I did decide then to have my beautiful wild art show, which you mentioned I won the award for. Mm -hmm. And because during lockdown I had all this time, I ended up making a lot of art, which was really wonderful. And so I decided to have a show. And then the show was really, really successful. It was really wonderful. I think I sold like 11 paintings at the show and 45 prints or something like that, mm, if I remember. Wow. It was like really, really awesome. And so in some ways it provided you with a kind of a break, which allowed you to change direction. Absolutely, yeah. You do something that most artists don't do. You often include a short story or a description with your paintings. Why add words to the viewer's experience? So my history, as I explained, was with creative writing. Like I was a novelist before I was a painter and I always feel like a creative connection to writing and I love writing. I just feel like when a piece is finished, it wants me to write something and not every painting does like more frivolous, like less meaningful paintings that I do don't request me to write something for them. If I do a small painting of like a little cute animal, I might not write something about that. But if I have a larger, more narrative work, then I definitely want to write something. And I just want to do it. And I like to do it. And I found that oftentimes the writing is what sells someone on the work. They love the painting and then they read the writing and it relates to them somehow. And they're like, okay. I like it. Yeah. And as a writer who loves words, I love the way you give context to these very cosmic, very symbolic paintings. So it's very helpful in a way too. Mm-hmm. Yes, and some artists would not want to do that and would think that it takes away from the work. And I see that point of view. Mm -hmm. But for me personally, I really think that the writing does add something to it and helps to connect it to the viewers more and helps me to kind of explain what I'm feeling and thinking about the piece. It's almost like a little painting-specific artist statement. Yeah, yeah. I have a quick question about teaching art. Uh, You say, and I'm going to quote you here, I believe each person has their own unique imagination, an entire world inside filled with characters, feelings, colors, and experiences, unquote. So the question I have for you is, can you teach someone to become an artist, or do you think some are just more naturally attuned in that direction? So for teaching, Mm -hmm. there's kind of two sides of it. So what I focus on in teaching is teaching people the fundamentals of art and the more technical side of art because I think everyone is an artist but not everyone will be an artist and so Mm -hmm. I think that if you want to be an artist and you want to dedicate your life to being an artist there's a certain level of drive that you have to have Mm. a lot of students don't have it but that's not what it's about like I'm not teaching these eight-year-old kids 
to try and make them become a professional artist. When I teach kids, it's more about just letting them have fun, explore mm. their creativity and learn some concepts and techniques along the way. And then once I get to working one-on-one with slightly older students, like 13, 14, 15, 16 teenagers, then I'm sort of trying to compel them to take it more seriously. I have some students who love working with me. They love painting and they're great at it and they learn a lot at it, but then they don't do it in their spare time, right? And that's Mm -hmm. a bit worrisome. But then I have other students who are constantly making art and taking lessons with me. And I feel like that's kind of a bit of a difference there. So if you're compelled to make art and you like have to create art, I think that is the type of person who will pursue it as a career. And if you don't pursue it as a career, that's fine. I still think that taking art lessons is a really good thing to do. It's good for your brain. It's good to learn about these things and to learn how to draw and to learn how to paint, even if it's just something you're going to do for fun. Yeah. I love teaching the students that are incredibly passionate about it and the ones that are just kind of doing it for fun. And I love teaching the younger kids who are just having fun and exploring their creativity. Really kind of enjoy teaching all those different types of students. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, you're dividing the group into what you see, the potential, and then adding the elements of discipline and reality you know you've experienced in your own life. Yeah, some students like art and they say they want to be an artist and then you have to communicate to them okay it's a lot of work and you have to really want it and some of them will some of them won't but I try to teach them all the same no matter what Mm -hmm. even if I have a student who I see and I know I'm like okay this person's gonna do it I'm not gonna treat them too much differently like I might change my approach a little bit but I want to give them all the equal opportunity you know what I mean because even if someone's not showing it now they could show it because I inspired them yeah, or exactly. because of the way that I taught them, right? Yeah, and while we're on that line of conversation, do you think there is such a thing as bad art? And if so, do you think it's possible to have too much bad art in the world? I think that art is very subjective and there's all different types of art. Like there's contemporary abstract painting, which is way different from the type of art that I do. And I think it's definitely valid. I think in terms of technical figurative painting, yes, there is such a thing as like a poorly done piece. Uh I do think that all art is valid. I think that a lot of times when people are first learning how to paint, they'll say, oh, no, it looks that way because like that's my personal style when really it's just they don't know how to paint yet. And I definitely did that when I first started painting. There was lots of errors and mistakes that I just said, oh, no, that's just my personal style. But I actually just didn't know how to paint properly or how to draw properly. And I'm obviously still learning and still making lots of mistakes, but my art is technically a lot better than it was. The spirit is still there. And that same spirit could still be seen in the earlier work. So I feel like there's those two components to it. And in a lot of contemporary abstract painting, you can see that it has that spirit and that sort of quality good art has where it's communicated from the heart. And there's also art that's not communicated from the heart and that's done for purely commercial reasons. Mm -hmm. And I think that good art is from the heart and from the soul. And I think that would be my distinction. An artwork could be technically amazing and completely lack Mm, any spirit and then i think that might not be considered good art for me whereas an art could be completely full of soul and spirit it could be really poorly technically done and i would probably still enjoy that artwork but i still wouldn't necessarily say that it's like a good artwork 
Because for me, a lot of art is like the discipline and the craft, but a lot of people don't see it that way and that's fine. But for me personally, I want to see refined technical ability and heart and soul. And to me, that's what makes good art. It also sounds to me like for all the wannabe artists out there that you said something which was fairly significant to my ears anyway, and that is to have a little humility in the learning process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely think when you're first starting out, yes, you have ideas and things that you want to create, but think about the fundamentals Think about light and form and color and go on YouTube and watch videos and enroll in some courses and really take some time to learn and don't let the learning destroy the heart and soul of your art. So you should always be making art for yourself and like pieces that are a communication from your heart and soul, but you should also always learn. And when I teach, I always like to take that approach where I want to be working with students on helping them create the art that they want to make. And in the process of doing that, teach them the technical concepts. Let me ask, if I may, I'd like to ask you a slightly personal question, if I could, Ricky. When I look at your artwork, it has this sort of gentleness to it. There's a certain softness about it, a certain openness about it. If I can use the word feminine, I would say a certain feminine side to it. And I know that in the last year or two, you've been sort of more uh, upfront with your sexual choices and your sexual nature. You even have an alter ego. What's her name again? Uh, it's my same name, Ricky Shade. Oh, Ricky <laughs> Yeah, same name, just different spelling. Yeah, I'm just wondering whether that has played into your art in any way. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So I'm definitely a pretty feminine person. And I think that it's just my spirit or whatever you'd want to call it is like a musical note. And it's just that's a note that I am. So I'm like pretty feminine. And of course, it comes through in my work because my work is coming from my heart. And so, of course, it's going to be reflected in the work. And I think that as I have kind of opened up and embraced my femininity over the past few years, it's definitely sort of becoming more present in my work, I would mm -hmm. say. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's got a nice uh, flavor to it. And uh, I really like some of your animal portraits. They have that childlike uh, gleam in their eyes. And it seems to be in all your paintings. It just emanates peace. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it's working then. Good. Thank you so much for telling me that. <laughs> so on that note, Ricky, uh, before we wrap up, we always like to give our guests an opportunity to tell our listeners anything about uh, events that are going on, references to websites or other places that you want people to know where they can get more information about you, what you're doing and what your future is going to be. Yeah, absolutely. So I would love for the listeners to visit my website, rickyshade.com. And then from my website, you can look at my art. I have an online store. You can also follow me on Instagram and on Facebook. And I'm also just starting a YouTube channel where I'm going to be creating videos sharing my art process and sharing sort of tips and tricks and instructional videos and also videos about the philosophy of art. So you can stay tuned for that, but it'll all be accessible through my website, rickyshade.com. Great. And by the way, Harry and I did take a quick look at your YouTube channel and very, very good work. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. yeah. There's only a couple of videos on there right now, but I'm working on more and excited to share my knowledge and I just feel like I have a lot to offer so I'm going to do that through videos. Well you do and on that note I want to thank you for being a guest giving us some of your time today we've uh, at least I've enjoyed it. I'll let Harry speak Me for too. himself. It's been a gas and a half. And and a half. <laughs> it's been great thank you Ricky much appreciated. Thank you guys so much for having me it's been a pleasure. All right talk Take to care. you soon. Okay bye guys thank bye. you. 
Yeah, and by the way, it's S-C-H-A-E-D-E for people who want to follow up. Mm, the actual spelling of his last name. Correct. So as usual, thank you for listening. Then go to our website. We've got a, an audio button that you can press, leave a message, mm-hmm. email or comments, or directly through our contact page on our website. We'd love to hear from you, any comments that you have on either side of the equation, so to speak. And if you're interesting enough, hey, we might want to interview you. So drop us a note. Tell us who you are. If you're doing something really interesting, mm-hmm. you have something to say, we'll talk to you. Ciao, Harry. Ciao, Peter. The Sill Podcast is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. Thank you for your donation to The Sill Podcast.